Arena. I'm head of the School of Politics and a co-director of the Center for Research on the European Matrix with Dr. Sandra Hashimoto here to my left. I'm going to go through a few things, housekeeping. Uh, first of all, we don't expect a fire, uh, well, a fire drill this evening, so if a fire alarm does go off, uh, please make your way out to the piazza. Um, secondly, uh, this is an independent event. It is not aligned with the campaigns. It is an expert panel of colleagues working in the field of law, politics, policy studies, and economics. Um, so we're going to try to answer all your questions, or as many questions as we possibly can tonight, as openly and frankly as possible. Uh, we'll, we all have our own views, but we're going to try to be as independent as possible. Above all, we're not going to be endorsing any one particular position as such. Uh, the structure of the event is going to be like question time. So we've already received a number of questions, which we're going to go through, and I'm going to give everyone here on the panel an opportunity to answer. So that takes me to my panel here tonight, and I'm going to go from left to right, um, not symbolizing anything in terms of the political spectrum, um, but to my left, to the far left, Dr. Sarnashwood is co-director of the Center for um, Research on the European Matrix, and he's an expert on UK and Europe uh, and Euroscepticism. To my left is Dr. Mason, lecturer in law. He's a philosopher of law and ethics, and does work on European social policy and law. To my right, Professor uh, Paul Levine from the Department of Economics, also working on issues to do with European economics. Um, to my right is Dr. Sue Milner from University of Bath, an expert in gender politics and employment policy and social policy. And last but not least, to my far right is Dr. Laura Chappell, also from the University of Surrey, an expert in uh, European security and defense policy. So we're going to go through as many issues as possible, ranging from social policy, economics, EU and the world, sorry, EU and UK and the world, and economics and law. Okay, so my first question is from Anna Maria Kahn. Can you identify yourself, please? Wait, wait, we have mics going. Hello, good evening. Uh, I've got a question to on Virgin, so I sent you the question that's rather closed. I didn't really mean to until after I clicked send, so apologies. Um, so far, everything we've heard or seen in the press seems to be one side either mudslinging or scaremongering, the other side's reason to either stay in or leave. And most people I know don't find this helpful. Indeed, it's detrimental to making an informed decision. Are we going to get plain, straightforward facts and figures of what the advantages are and what it's going to cost us staying or leave in an unbiased way? Please take that in the spirit which is intended rather than the literal yes or no. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Simon. I think in the narrow sense of this panel, I think we all are going to try and give you as uh, impartial a, a position as possible. I think in the broader sense of the campaign, there is a danger that a lot of what you hear 
is immediately rebuffed or rebutted or called into question by the other side. The things that I would say, I think, are, are two. Firstly, that there is uh, independent, uh, impartial advice out there. So it was, uh, it's helpfully being promoted on the, uh, on the PowerPoint slide. I'm uh, working with uh, a uh, independently funded program, uh, UK and Changing Europe, uh, which has websites at UK and EU.ac.uk, uh, uh, which provides lots of information from independent sources, and if people want to pick up a leaflet about that, they can at the end. Second thing I, I would be recommending to everyone is to uh, try and uh, engage in good academic practice when listening to debate. That don't take any one person's uh, advice. Uh, without question, <coughs> about listening to the different voices, the different arguments. And I think what becomes apparent very quickly is that uh, some people's arguments and uh, counter-arguments are not as strong as the, the ones that are being made by different people. And I think the more you can get a sense of the different perspectives that are out there, uh, the more likely you are to come to a, a decision that you feel is founded on something more robust. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure what you're asking, whether, you, whether you're asking us now to come up with the, the case and, and the facts and figures. I, enti I entirely agree with what you said about the monster I find myself frustrated on a daily basis because what we're seeing is obviously the way that the media here construct this debate and then obviously politicians on both sides are going to play to that. So I would agree with what Simon said in the sense that um, I think as citizens, we also have a duty to um, make sure that when we listen to what's being told, that we are subjecting all of that to some kind of verification <coughs> and analysis. I think it's difficult in the sense that what we're seeing also is a lot of counterfactuals. In other words, on both sides we're getting, well, what would happen if, what would happen if, and a lot of the time, <coughs> actually, these people are just guessing or what they're doing is they're constructing models that are essentially confirming their own beliefs. So I would be wary of all of those <laughs> constructions of, and projections of people's beliefs and think about exactly what does the EU do, what are its competences. Um, there was a few years ago, and I hesitate a bit because it's a, it's a big unwieldy set of documents, but um, it's actually not that long ago, a couple of years ago, um, a balance of competencies review that was undertaken by the coalition government. That was a really comprehensive assessment um, of what membership means to us in Britain. And it was looking at a range of opinions. I think it's, it's a really good place to start. So actually, probably my homework to take away tonight is maybe to do a blog or something that's summarising that. I did, I've done that with my students. But, um, because it is a relatively balanced assessment. So look for things like that as sources of information. I definitely don't believe that it's really good press. Thank you. Paul. Yes, the um, question is um, mentioned scale numbering. <coughs> and uh, I suggested that the view that we, we face problems of, of greater uncertainty if possible if we change the status quo. Um, is somehow um, an unfair um, position to take. I think one of the central, one of the central positions 
conditions and views one has to take to, to make this assessment is whether staying in the EU involves more or less uncertainty than leaving the EU. Now, having come to that, um, that decision, then one's got to take a stance on your attitude towards uncertainty. Um, I would personally like to take risks, because if, <coughs> if, if leaving the EU, for instance, opens up a, a wide range of possibilities, good or bad, and if you like taking risks, then that would be the decision you take. If, on the other hand, one takes the view, I think, I would take the view that status quo is almost always one that involves less risk, then if you're risk averse, you would tend to go in that direction. Um, now, uncertainty enters into the, into the considerations in, in, in several ways. The main one is its effect on, on investment. <clears throat> if uncertainty um, in fact is something that, that will increase the change to the status quo, then, and if firms <coughs> indeed are, are risk averse in, in their investment decisions, then that would have an adverse effect. Um, if on the other hand, they took a different view of on, <coughs> on uncertainty, then the opposite would be the, the case. Um, now, <coughs> to turn to another main decision is, um, I suppose at the heart of the debate is the trade-off, trade-off between cooperation and sovereignty. In a sense, everybody wants sovereignty. There's no question that sovereignty, or leaving an institution, gives you more options. If you weight that in favour, if you're heavily in favour of this increased options, then that would tend to, to make you choose the, the option of leaving. Um, if on the other hand you um, are less concerned about sovereignty but see the benefits of cooperation, then that would be a reason for, for choosing to uh, not to leave, to stay in the EU. There's a wide range of areas over which the EU cooperates. Um, Possibly the main one is trade, movements of labor, movements of capital. This is the one that's received the most attention, but there are many other areas of cooperation that some of my colleagues here alluded to over the course of the next hour and a half. Um, there's cooperation over, over security, we have experts here on security. Cooperation over um, fiscal policy as well as monetary policy. Uh, cooperation over um, uh, foreign policy. Um, so one has to make that, that choice between the benefits of cooperation uh, and the benefits of sovereignty, which gives you more options. Can I just take um, one, one point of that model? Because um, um, modeling is one of the things that, that we do in the in economics. And, in fact, I have some of my students here who are sitting through my, my course on modeling. Um, and um, I will take issue with the, the view that, that models simply confirm the, the prior views of, of the models. The one thing about modeling is it's incredibly accountable. 
because you write down all the assumptions you make. The, the, the assumptions are um, <coughs> the assumptions are completely visible. The assumptions can be are open to to peer review. Um, the assumptions can be contested, and the, and the logical consequences of the assumptions can be can be verifiable or, or disproved. So, what I would say about particularly about the economics of of Brexit, the benefits and the costs, is that is that there is no um, uh, there's no alternative to assessing these two models. Um, so that's yes, that's, that's really helpful. Luke, hi. Um, I think it's a very good question. We all agree with the premise of the question. I think everyone in this room is here probably because they're frustrated the debasing and debased level of the debate. Um, what's interesting, I think, is, is the tension which is emerged in the answers, uh, which is on the one hand, people say, well, we need to look at more information, lots of information is out there, let's look at the goals and competencies and choices of the EU. And then we have a second paradigm for understanding the question, which emerges about certainty and uncertainty. Um, I, I want to try and answer by bringing these two things together to kind of make us make us think more clearly about these questions. So <coughs> it seems to me that what, what the question is picking up on is that the debate around leaving the EU focuses on what will happen if we leave and what will happen if we stay. <coughs> this, this seems to be an almost absurd way of looking at it because of course it depends what we choose to do if we stay in and what we choose to do if we leave. And that, this is why I'm, I'm slightly hesitant to endorse any uh, certainty or uncertainty or sovereignty or cooperation paradigm because what, what these ideas really stand for are more fundamental questions. Well, I think what we want to be looking at is what kind of things do we want to be able to do as a society, as a collective, a European collective or a national, regional city or within this room, what kind of decisions do we want to be able to make together, individually, and is it going to be more appropriate for us to do this? on our own, outside of the EU, or more appropriate within the EU? Are we going to be more capable of doing those things within uh, a framework which allows us to do this through, through what my friend called uh, cooperation? And I think this is the big thing where the certainty, uncertainty, and cooperation, sovereignty paradigm breaks down. Because of course sovereignty is in itself meaningless unless you're capable of achieving the goals you want to achieve. Right? But what we actually want is control. We want autonomy, we want to be able to do things we want to achieve. And we want to ask ourselves, are we more capable of achieving certain things in the EU? Or are we less capable of achieving those things, given the choices that the EU has made or its structure? And because of this, I think we need to ask much deeper questions before we can answer the question about the EU. What, what do we actually want together? What do we want from life? You know, do, we, do, we want, do we want to be richer? Do we want to be more culturally diverse? Do we want to be more culturally rich? You know, what, what, what do we want? And, if we can make those, if we can state those things, then we can say, well, can we achieve those things better through the EU? Or can we not achieve those things better through the EU? Would it be better to achieve those things on our own? And I, and I think we, we, we move into a new way of thinking about this question, right? That's kind of thinking about it as a lawyer, as, as well as a, as a theorist and anything else, is you say, well, what will best allow us to achieve our goals, right? And, and if, we, if we just have these, these surveys which are self-confirming, my colleague was saying, we say, well, you know, I've shown through this economic analysis that we'll lose three pounds a day per head. Why is that a useful piece of information anyway? Even if it's true, which almost certainly isn't, because it's almost certainly made up. 
who cares? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Who knows? Let's work out what we want and then work out whether it's easier to achieve that through media or less. Thank you. Laura. Okay. Um, I think all of us were, were hoping that one of them, the benefit of having an EU referendum was that the British public would finally be informed about the European Union in terms of what it is, how it works, how it benefits um, us to actually be in the European Union. Instead, what we have seen, particularly in the press, is what Anne-Marie has alluded to in her question, which is mudslinging and
With the EU, we have clout in certain areas, and possibly without them, we might not be as strong. Thank you. Laura. Okay, so what will the UK look like? Well, the EU, um, the UK does derive some benefits from being in the European Union in respect to uh, foreign security and defence policy. Um, so these include access to European arrest warrants, which the UK has used to get criminals back uh, into the UK in order to put them on trial. Um, we have uh, we've actually co-initiated the common security and defence policy uh, along with France within the European Union, uh, the, uh, for the policy document, um, the European security strategy was actually drafted by a Brit, uh, Robert Cooper, who was Tony Blair's former advisor. Uh, the UK has uh, been leading in a number of EU military operations. These include EU Navfor Atalanta, which is the EU's anti-piracy operation of the Gulf of Aden. Uh, they've also been uh, supporting uh, Operation Sophia, which is the EU's uh, operation off the coast of Libya, uh, which partly is about uh, anti-smuggling, but also, of course, about rescuing people from the Mediterranean Sea, unfortunately. Uh, they've been the forefront of uh, EU for Alpia, which is a military operation in uh, the Balkans, um, as well as the EU's assistance mission in Ukraine. So the UK does play a key role within uh, the common security and defence policy. Um, so yes, we would lose some influence in respect, of course, to EU operations, not necessarily participating in them per se, but in deciding which operations the, um, the EU should launch. Okay, um, CSDP is an intergovernmental area where each country has a, um, a veto, essentially. Okay, so if you're not sat around the table, then evidently uh, those decisions are made without you. Um, the UK has also wielded its veto as well in respect to the creation of operational headquarters. Um, the other thing to note is that the UK is an Atlanticist. This means that it has a very strong pro-US um, foreign policy. And so, one more point, final point. Um, and so, the, the reason why, the, why it's beneficial for the UK to remain in the EU, of course, is that it can ensure that CSDP remains um, as a policy which cooperates with NATO, doesn't duplicate NATO. Um, so yes, there are benefits. Um, leaving them would mean that we don't have any influence over um, common security and defence policy, and it would mean that we don't have access to European arrest warrant or um, certain information in relation to uh, counterterrorism. So that's what I would say. Right. Thank you, Laura. I should have brought my whistle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we wonder why our students get up, how why we actually get them to do presentations. Would anybody else like to come in on that? No. Simon? No. Okay, if we stay in, the UK has European foreign policy capacity. It can do that in addition to the things it does as uh, an independent state. So it's not a, European foreign policy is not really a replacement, but a supplement <coughs> to uh, the UK. So in that sense, uh, it, it's things it would do, but it's doing them in a particular kind of way, in a particular kind of combination. If the UK left, um, potentially that means, well, it means that access to those joint operations would not take place, but still it would be, you would imagine there'd be capacity to take part in those kinds of 
uh, operations through NATO or through other mechanisms or through the UN. What really matters in uh, the case of the UK leaving, and it's the point that, that Luke made uh, earlier, is it depends on what we're trying to achieve. What's the, what's the UK's role in the world? And it, it then really comes down to what, how any government that, that uh, follows uh, a vote to sees this work. Is it about uh, the UK retreating from its international uh, roles and its international commitments, something much more limited, or is it something that's going out and trying to make a, a big uh, splash in the world? And, and again, it's, it's imponderable and it's unknown, and it will depend on the context that exists. So there's not uh, an automatic loss of influence uh, it depends much more on uh, what the government chooses to do, how it chooses to position itself. Thank you. Uh, yes, back to, actually come back to my sovereignty versus cooperation dichotomy, which I insist is at the heart of the, the debate. Um, what my, my fellow panelists have said actually reinforces this. So what, um, Laura. Laura, okay, Laura. Um, so eloquently went through a whole series of areas where the um, members of the European Union cooperate over many aspects of foreign policy. And the thing about leaving, of course, is that you have the option, you have the option of not participating in all these things. <coughs> You're no longer constrained. So one's got to take a view about whether these activities, these forms of cooperation are a good thing for Europe and a good thing for the world. Um, if you do, you stay and cooperate. If you view many of these activities as, as not being um, in the interest of the world, then you tend to um, vote for, for Brexit. So it's, again, it's, it's cooperation versus, uh, versus sovereignty. The benefits you might get from sovereignty are against the benefits from cooperation. At the risk of this being a particularly uniform response, I would say that, um, for me at least, this is the strongest. Perhaps the, there are two really strong arguments for remaining, um, which is that in the world of this really dangerous, complex world we're in, um, size does matter and voice matters. Um, and I think that the EU can be, can be not necessarily is yet, but can be a really powerful voice amplifier. Personally, I would like to see the British position embedded in a, in a more <coughs> an ambitious multilateral framework, in, and I'd like to see the EU doing that more ambitiously as well. And just very briefly, in one sense, um, to continue on being sovereignty, and I think to answer the previous comments, really, is the, the big thing which I think would change in relation to foreign policy is we would be forced to do things on our own, and for whatever that means, that doesn't mean they are better or worse things, but it's often difficult to achieve things in a world of 200 and however many states and various different uh, elements of chaos existing in the world when uh, you're acting on your own. Um, and sovereignty has different layers of meaning, I think, in that Thank you. Uh, Lisa Roberts, Brexit Politics, Brexit Uh, 
accelerate the potential devolution of the UK.
So it makes no sense. The UK leaves the EU, Scotland should leave the EU. The UK, or England, and, and the rest of the UK stay in the EU, then so should Scotland. That's, that's the logic. Okay, thank you. Um, right. Um, Julianne Ortsen? Julianne? But I will read this because, again, it's uh, I think it's quite a pertinent question. Uh, what impact will Brexit have on inequality in the UK? What impact will Brexit have on inequality in the UK? Um, well, I don't really establish something particularly like um, very counterfactual, but I am not convinced necessarily it would have um, much impact either way. That, that's my um, honest assessment. I think um, what we've seen is inequality um, or inequalities have uh, widened in Britain over the last uh, few years. I agree with you. 
a statement about um, what happens depending on what we do. And this is actually an example of the point. I, I don't think um, inequality that we see in Europe, which, which varies tremendously from country to country, actually depends on, on the, the policies of individual governments. And, I think, and that will continue. If, <coughs> if we leave, what happens in inequality depends upon the policies that we pursue. If we stay, the same thing applies. I think on the question of um, uh, discrimination, I, I think it's the case, uh, I don't speak here as an expert, but, but looking back, looking back at my, my training on, on equal opportunities, I do, I do recall that, that most of the provisions from um, uh, discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and so on, they emanate from, from governments of this, this country. So I, th I, th I think the position we have on inequality in that dimension is mainly home grown, and I think that, that will continue. So, you want to just a bit of on that point, because yeah, thinking about questions slightly differently, because uh, I was thinking about the production, as, as um, Paul just said, of inequalities <coughs> rather than the fight against um, inequalities and discrimination. I think there is obviously another question here, which is the um, Convention on Human Rights and, the, and our ratification of that, which is independent of a decision on membership of the European <coughs> Union, but nevertheless indirectly connected, because we know that the current government has a commitment in its manifesto to replace that European, uh, the ratification of the European Convention um, in its British form with a British Bill of Rights. And that is something that I think as citizens we need to watch out for and be very vigilant about, because I cannot imagine for a second students uh, 
understanding. And just uh, to elaborate on a couple of points that, that Laura mentioned, one of the reasons why the UK has so many EU students is that it is an attractive destination uh, in the higher education sector. And uh, a lot of the advantages that uh, the UK has are not dependent immediately on EU membership. So it's about the quality of the educational experience that uh, can be provided compared to uh, other European uh, countries. So in, in the short run, yes, there will be a, a disruption uh, in terms of if you switch to overseas fees for all of these students that you would expect fewer of them to come. But uh, the, in the long run, you would expect that the, the, the relatively strong position of UK HE would uh, still be attractive. At the same time, that, I think there are, you know, there are bigger issues, uh, as I suggested, that there are uh, developments and changes in the, the sector which go well beyond uh, any one country. Um, and so I think we're going to see a, a reshuffle in the, the way that the, uh, the university sector is organised in any case. So again, it's part of a, a bigger picture where those other forces are probably going to be more important in the long run compared to uh, the UK being in or out. <coughs> yeah, just to say that I think Erasmus is a, a, an undoubted success story of the University of Union. And um, obviously it doesn't benefit everybody, um, but we can see that um, it is creating, it, it's definitely helped by the university sector, I think that's undeniable. Um, just to say that one of my students recently when I was in a discussion about the future of the European Union was saying, if we're thinking about things that the European Union could do better, and maybe should be doing, maybe we should be thinking, I'm picking up on Laura's point, about trying to put funds into helping all children to have chances of being able to go on exchange visits from school. And, and um, so again, there are lots of ideas, I think, but and maybe that's something that we could hope could come out of this referendum campaign, ways in which we can think of ways of making the European Union better. Here's a time when I'm actually going to agree with um, my esteemed friend's uh, cooperation in something that we've yeah. One thing which I, I think characterises the UK's higher, higher education uh, kind of policy, as it were, or <coughs> tactics or, or positioning of higher education institutions is within the EU as a, as a marketplace, that it competes on some level uh, for, for students and for prestige, and, that it's, and our approach to higher education is remarkably uncooperative. Um, I would imagine that would be exacerbated by the EU. Um, and we would, it would be even more product than we sold abroad. And I think a link, and we kind of link, I can link this to the Laurie way, the, the, the reason, kind of historically, the reason there is the right to study at the same uh, fee level in EU countries as, as uh, uh, citizens of that, or residents of that state, is that uh, it's, uh, there's been a link with free movement of labour and the education and training, eventually free movement to obtain education and training came from that. Um, but I think, so if we, if we leave the EU, things kind of get a little bit confused, but there's a bigger link to, between free movement of labour and education, and that's that lots of people who come to the UK to certain types of study in higher education are attracted to the jobs market of the United Kingdom. They, they want to work in the UK, uh, in certain areas at least. And of course, if we leave the EU, that free movement of labour will disappear. And that will change the dynamic slightly. And we have other advantages in inverted commas um, that, that we teach in English, English is a national language, business, but that's a separate place.
um, Tomokazo Yamamoto?
trade deal with the US market like Canada, you've got to accept that. <coughs> now within the EU, there's a possibility that there's a stronger bargaining um, power of the EU to, to offset that and, and to come to some compromise that will not have that effect. So on every account, on every account, TTIP is, is a reason to stay in Thank you. Um, yeah, I'll say two things about this. I, I agree completely with some of this. The, um, the, the argument about TTIP is basically, I think, if I can quite say slightly good, is to say that it undermines the ability of EU member states um, to achieve uh, social policy objectives by rendering them illegal because of their negative impact on investor interests. Um, I, I think that's a very reasonable argument to put forward and, and a very reasonable basis upon which the European Union might seek to uh, obtain certain concessions from the United States in the negotiation. I think whether that would mean that we should leave the EU, beyond all the illegal side of the EU, there are arguments about vetoes and things which are absolutely true, is would the United Kingdom be able to better achieve within a globalised economy of social policy objectives outside of the EU? I mean, that seems to me to be a far fetched I'd say something Slight, sorry, like no, we shouldn't leave the legal aspects. I'd say something else related to the legal aspects of this is that which is worrying from the European Union and its common legal um, traditions and, and policies and, and values is that what these kind of trading agreements introduce is kind of arbitration style um, and almost closed fora of legal discussion. That to me is a far greater concern as a lawyer. That these decisions, if they are to be made, and we are to look at investor interests and investor rights, they should happen in ordinary court structures, which are open in, in, in a kind of proud, legalistic tradition of the United Kingdom, the EU, and, and the United States, I guess. And I, I do have concerns. Can I just ask you something? Is it possible? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you would accept that if you're going to have a single market, you need a common set of regulations. So these issues are always going to be um, any trading relationship, either within the EU or between the EU and the United States, or between the UK and at least the EU and negotiators with the United States, you've got to come to some common agreement on regulation. You just can't get away from that. And that, that's the negotiations over TTIP pinpoints one particular regulation that's, I think, largely unacceptable in, in the EU. But there, there are many others. And um, the, the reason why it's taken three years, and probably a bit um, there's a lot of disagreement about the EU regulations, but, but there are benefits from achieving agreements of common, re of common regulation. <coughs> because quite simply, there are enormous benefits from increasing freedom of trade between countries and investment. Simon, a, a number of amplifications of those points. The dispute resolution mechanism is something which is becoming more more important. Uh, in international systems, so it's not that it's just a TTIP issue, it's, it's, a, it's a broader issue. I think the second thing to say is that there are already moves to try and have uh, public service exemptions around that to limit the, the impact of uh, you know, thing, uh, provision of general services. And, um, so this is a long-term process, it is something which still looks uh, highly question about whether we'll actually come to anything. And there is, of course, the question about you know, what's the counterfactual <coughs> in the UK that's trying to reach its own uh, arrangement with the, the US as a whole. Mm. 
The other point that I, I, I want to make, but it's a bit different, is that if you think about concerns about privatisation <coughs> of the NHS, as much as that has happened in the UK, that has been driven not by the EU or by TTIP or by globalisation, as it has by government policy. That uh, successive governments have felt that in order to um, make that uh, health provision viable uh, and affordable, that it's required the introduction of market mechanisms. And that's been something which has been done uh, independent of uh, external pressure or, or forces uh, in that regard. So, again, you know, we're kind of caught here in a, a bit of a, 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 a difficulty. On one hand, we're saying the EU is important, has consequences, but it's also important to remember that member states just the UK, but any member state, retains a, a large degree of discretion about how it arranges itself, and that the member states of the EU look very different and operate in very different ways, sometimes fundamentally different ways. So again, if we want, if we have, if the concern is about NHS privatisation, rather than that it, then it's uh, government action that is the, the key area that we, we need to look at and need to think about uh, influencing. Thank you. Um, there is actually a question from uh, Twitter um, that has come through, or a pick up on a previous question from Twitter. So I'm not just looking at my emails, by the way, that's uh, with my <laughs> laptop open here. Uh, where actually there is a bit of a discussion going on on Twitter as well. Uh, Don Watt? Hi, Don. Would you like to pick up your question on Erasmus that you posted on Twitter? So we're going back one question, and uh, it's, it's a response to the previous question about the Erasmus Exchange Scheme. Uh, well, what I wanted to point out, which I was alluding to, I don't think it was made explicitly clear by the panelists, was that you don't have to be in the EU to be in the Erasmus Program. There's actually 37 countries involved in the Erasmus Program, but only 28 in the EU. So I just wanted to point that out. automatically end if the UK uh, isn't a member state, but uh, Switzerland has uh, done very well, although at the moment that's uh, under suspension because of uh, unrelated issues uh, around its uh, complicated arrangements uh, and its relations. But you're right that membership is not a prerequisite for access to those uh, particular funds, but again it's a question of uh, what terms uh, the UK is uh, involved in those uh, particular systems. Excellent. Um, going on to the next question, uh, again from uh, what was submitted before. Karaki? Um, really not having a lot of luck. Um, right, or people just don't want to actually ask the question. But I will, I will read it out. Um, Luke, I'm going to go to you first. And how would Britain exiting the EU impact on UK citizens living in Europe, especially those who are employed in the UK but live in Europe? That's a very good question. Um, <coughs> it's a legal question. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, one of the answers, who knows? It's a hypothetical. There is an actual legal answer. The, those uh, people would no longer benefit from their free movement rights as European Union citizens. Um, they would therefore find themselves in an interesting state of limbo, which would have to be dealt with. Uh, it would have to be dealt with by the countries within which they, they work. They would be the third country nationals. Um, you would hope that the, the UK would negotiate with the countries on their behalf, and there would be some sort of interesting and suitable arrangement that would be reached. What that arrangement would actually involve is not necessarily clear. So the EU as a trading bloc is designed in many respects to protect the EU from outside shocks. And in the kind of the four freedoms framework of the European treaties, one of those shocks is outside workers, workers from outside the EU. The EU is not particularly um, favorable in its legal structures to non-EU workers, uh, unless you happen to have some link to employment through law, the citizenship directives, the way they some link to, to an EU um, national. Uh, what would happen to them? I, I, I don't know. Would, that would be a kind of a, a negotiation to be had. We would have to see, but they would certainly lose their rights. Yeah, just, I mean, the, the Norway example is sort of suggestive of the kind of arrangement that could apply. And I, I think I'm right in saying that um, the freedom of movement rules would still pretty much apply. So it would still be possible to. Um, set up, get side jobs, and, and all the rest. But uh, going back to the Erasmus question, in, in terms of so Norwegian students pay the overseas fees, so there is a difference. Um, yeah, there's a price to pay, basically. Can I just come back very quickly? Yeah. That's absolutely right, of course, if you can to join your exactly. economic area, for instance, yeah. then you free movement of labour yeah. is But many of the advantages you get from working in a foreign country <coughs> social advantages instead of EU membership and not from the EEA membership, and, and therefore you lose some of those social protections as a worker working in the EEA. I think um, also it's not just about workers, but also pensioners. There are a number of pensioners, uh, British pensioners, who are living particularly in Northern Spain, uh, who are able to draw on a UK pension uh, and, and live there, and also, of course, have access to Spanish healthcare, um, as well in, in Certainly not in the, the short run, but 
number of people involved that we're talking about, maybe uh, a couple of uh, million uh, people uh, all told uh, both ways. It's, uh, it's a very substantial number of people um, and removing, uh, for example, the pensioners from uh, southern Spain uh, might save the uh, Spanish health service money, but also would be a big negative shock to the local economy. Oh. Um, well, that. I echo the, the expert who said that he doesn't know what the effect is going to be. I don't know what the effect. And this highlights the point I started off with and I'm, I'm laboring with <laughs> over the course of this, uh, this discussion. That, um, this is just yet another example of the uncertainty that the space when we, we change the, the status quo. We say, we say in the EU, we, we know what the elections are going to be. If we leave, we Good deal of uncertainty. It's also true that this uncertainty is with the so-called Norwegian model. Now, the, there are basically three models of, of, of what the new relationship would be if we, if we left the EU. On the one hand, one extreme is the Norwegian model, where we, we stay in the single market. Um, we single market in goods and services, and we accept all the regulations. Um, we pay a fee. In the case of Norway, actually, they, they pay because 83% of, of, of the of UK on a per capita basis. So, to take into account the relative salary, they, they're, they're paying 83% of the membership fee that, that, that we do. So, that's a situation where Norway involves the, the least gain in sovereignty, but the greatest commitment to the regulations and the practices of the EU. But, of course, it means no, no say in any and the other extreme is, 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 is the World Trade Organization, where we completely leave the, the single market. This has actually been mentioned, I think, by, by Michael Gurley, um, where we um, completely leave the, the single market and negotiate a series of bilateral deals with all the <coughs> countries with which the EU has a relationship. And we, we negotiate a deal with the EU as well. Uh, now that offers the, the greatest gain in sovereignty, um, but the greatest uncertainty as well. Yeah. Simon? Just the one area of certainty, just one small group of people who will definitely have an impact, <laughs> exit which are those UK nationals who work for the EU. Um, so there are hundreds of uh, UK nationals who work in Brussels, Strasbourg, um, Luxembourg. Um, they will no longer be able to work for the EU because you have to be a member state national. So one of the questions that was raised to me by some of those who were doing Brussels is, who is responsible for these people uh, when they stop working? Uh, because they no longer work for their employer, who no longer presumably has any uh, contractual rights uh, towards them. So uh, is the UK government obliged to give them all jobs? Is it obliged to honor their uh, work contracts, their pensions, uh, their tax arrangements? Uh, this probably doesn't bother any of you, but as an example, just somewhere where there definitely is a, a consequence, uh, you can certainly see that. Uh, I don't think it would be a great concern. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any questions from the audience that you'd like? Yeah, there's one there. living in the 
used to my understanding that there's going to be uh, hundreds of thousands of Commonwealth voters who can partake in this referendum. And they certainly have interest to maybe, you know, know the impact of it. change for <coughs> country nationals, uh, in the short run, nothing would change because uh, third country nationals' status wouldn't uh, be modified. Um, in the longer run, though, uh, if uh, a government decided that it would use uh, more freedom or sovereignty uh, to change its immigration policy, then potentially then it could change uh, access uh, regimes, residency regimes, uh, for people uh, who are wanting to come into the UK, but uh, you know, in terms of influence, one of the you know the ironies of uh, this referendum is that EU nationals uh, are not uh, going to be able to vote in this referendum mm. uh, unless uh, they are uh, Commonwealth nationals. So uh, Maltese, Cypriots, uh, Irish uh, voters, uh, nationals that are able to vote along with. Uh, uh, everyone else from the Commonwealth. So, in terms of the uh, the franchise of the referendum, it maps the one you have for a general election. But you might make the argument that people who are uh, particularly involved uh, in that decision, uh, so non-Commonwealth EU nationals, uh, might feel that that's a bit grief, and they do, uh, but they've lost that uh, particular legal battle. Yeah. I mean, I, I would kind of just add some nuance to that. Really, that's exactly right. I think in the short term. Nothing will change. The UK can more or less set its policy already on, on third country mm. more or less. Um, the impact of EU law, yeah, the impact of EU law on, on UK's policy is, is relatively small. The, the soft impact, the kind of more indirect impact of EU law on the potential for, for, for policies regarding third country national is far more dramatic. And we see in immigration debates in the UK um, how these are. Uh, shaped by the fact that politicians can't make any, uh, can't suggest any policy initiatives which concern EU nationals because that would be discrimination under EU law. Um, so issues around immigration often come to concern, at least when they're translated into policy, concern only third country nationals. That would change significantly with Brexit because there, there would be, all foreign nationals would, would be the same legally. And that, that would give a large amount of leeway really in an interesting way. But I think it relatively uniquely, really, because I think in, in lots of ways, leaving the EU would make it more difficult for the UK to make certain decisions. It would make it more easy to control. Uh, <coughs> that foreign nationals generally. So that, but what the outcome of that would be, I'm not sure. Yeah, another question from your audience. Great. Who would America, who would America look to for that special relationship with the EU? Laura. The special relationship is, it's a UK thing. <laughs> 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 
going to the States, <coughs> because there might be a cultural identity, but politically, the UK is, is one of several key parts, and the country I actually would have thought would have mentioned would be Germany, but there's been a special relationship or a linchpin of mm -hmm. West European security in the post-1945 uh, era, then Germany was kind of the, the centre of the system. But I think, you know, in terms of a special relationship, I think the thing to remember is that, yes, the U US has been consistent about wanting the UK to be part of the European integration uh, developments that have taken place uh, over the post-war period. But I, I think we would be advised to be realistic about it and say that one of the key reasons for doing that has been that it has been advantageous for American security agendas, that a divided Europe was not desirable in the Cold War. It's actually not desirable now, but in terms of promoting stability, uh, keeping Europe together is better than having it fall apart. And that's good also economically as well. So, shifting uh, away from, from de defence and security slightly, because um, I think the, the special relationship um, is not... <coughs> So I think the, 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 the shift in the EU, and there's a reason I'm going to say this, the, the shift in the, the, the value and the goals of the EU from a, an ordo-liberal project, we would say, to a neo-liberal project in many respects, right? a, shift, a shift in ide economic ideology of the EU, as I think has happened to some extent due to the influence of the United Kingdom, introducing a certain Anglo-Saxon lexicon into EU policymaking. That is connected to the special relationship. The special relationship has been bolstered and has in fact become more important as the US sees its trade and economic policy being enacted in some way through the shared policy objectives of the United Kingdom or the perceived shared policy objectives. The, the special relationship takes on a very different dynamic with the UK these years because the, the US doesn't need the UK to push its agenda in the EU. That's not necessarily a good or a bad thing for the special relationship, <coughs> but it definitely makes it a different I just want to come back on, on Simon's point as to why not Germany. Um, Germany follows a uh, Sobel als Alf policy as well as a policy in which they don't choose between Europe and America. Okay, The two relationships are considered to be equal and balanced. And for Germany to articulate US interests within the EU, I think, would result in an unbalancing of, of that relationship. So that's why I didn't automatically think of uh, Germany. I was thinking more of Atlanticist um, countries, and that includes okay. primarily the Central East European countries. Maybe my reference is that <laughs> Germany, the, we're talking about two different levels of policy then. One is about sort of small policy decisions, mm -hmm. you know, kind of contingent issues. The other one is about the structure of the system. So in that sense, Germany's European policy is closely aligned to American European policy, but it wants to promote cooperation, uh, deregulation, uh, you know, the auto-liberal model that Germany's uh, had in that post global world. And so it's a bit like the EU generally, that Germany doesn't have to uh, win every uh, policy battle <coughs> uh, because the structure is generally beneficial. Whereas I think in the UK, one of the reasons we have the difficulties that we have is that British politicians focus more on the battles rather than on the, the bigger uh, issues. So, you know, we kind of have gone, you know, the history of Britain's European 
membership or EU membership has been about sorting out problems. Budget <laughs> Voter, that you then get to shape those decisions. And I think I'm really happy that 
you're thinking about those things already. France broke up and 
you know, the European Union broke up, would that, would that have an effect because then everyone would be in the same position and looking for a trading bloc kind of again and they could do it differently? Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Laura. Oh, this Okay, so, same question. Uh, and I guess we don't have very long, so very quickly. Should, seconds. Should the UK take into account the opinions of other EU countries? It would be nice, but highly unlikely. I think people will vote based on, uh, partly on what the EU, what's in it for them in a way? What are the benefits of being in the EU for uh, UK uh, citizens? Um, should they, however, take into account security? I think actually yes, because a secure Europe is in the UK's interests. And I think we often forget uh, the history of uh, Europe. And that links in to whether it's going to help the UK if Europe break, if the EU um, ceases to exist and break up. One of the um, key successes, I would say, of um, EU foreign policy is that of enlargement of taking in countries who were former, um, who were ruled by former dictators and bringing them into the European Union and ensuring um, economic uh, stability, uh, well, we have the Euro crisis, but ensuring um, democracy, rule of law, uh, human, uh, respect for human rights within um, these countries. And that's not just in respect to Central and Eastern Europe, but also in regards to the accession of Greece in 1981 and in respect to the accession of Spain and Portugal in 1986. So let's not take um, our security for granted. And it's not just NATO, of course, who underpins um, security on the continent of Europe. The EU and NATO do complementary um, things in respect to um, securing uh, Europe. And in respect to the impact of the job market on UK people, well, of course, currently we have the freedom to work in another EU country. My first job was not in the UK, it was in Austria, and I took advantage of uh, that freedom of, of movement. Um, so yes, it, it would have potentially an impact. And again, this goes back to what the UK uh, would um, obviously deal, uh, how the UK and the EU would come to some form of agreement should we uh, decide to leave. And of course, that uh, we don't know. Luke. Okay, this was great. Three questions put together. Um, slightly contrived answer, but I think there are, there are three levels on which we can see this question of the EU. Right? There are three ways we can try and answer the question. Should we leave the EU for what, because of what's in it for me? Should we leave the EU because it will stay in the EU because of what's in it for us, the UK? And should we stay or leave the EU because of what's in it for us, Europe? Right? And this, this is this big thing. And I think this came out in those three questions. Because one of the questions, a very interesting question, was about individuals, prospects, and the job market. The, the third question was a question about individual nation states, kind of uh, disintegration of the European Union, and what's in it for those nation states, and then would they then see it in their own benefit to get back together, and then there was this bigger question, right? Are we asking the question, what's, what's in it for the UK, the EU is there to serve the UK or my individual job uh, prospect, which is a reasonable thing to say, or are we a bigger community? And, and I do say one thing to reflect on that, therefore, and I, and I think this is a problem that we're not thinking about these different levels of, of engagement. The, the, the issue is, I guess, there's an, it's not parochial, I think. There is a level of arrogance in the debate about this, the issue of peace and continued peace and the, and the coincidence of peace in Europe, Western Europe at least, since, uh, Europe, 
since uh, the Second World War, that that's got nothing to do with the, the that that's happened to the UK. It's got nothing to do with the EU because the UK is so virtuous and it doesn't need the EU. And the UK was never involved in any wars before the EU. Right? Um, that, that's problematic, I think. I think we have to look at this more holistically. That we are part of a community, and what impact will we have on that community in the long run? That's something we we owe it to each other to think of. We owe it to our broader community.
the effective labor EU could be, because we have to reconstruct a whole series of trade relations, it could mean less trade. Now trade brings comparative advantage. Trade helps growth and outputs. Outputs <coughs> growth. And um, so it fosters employment. So, so generally speaking, um, the, the possible consequences from, from the viewpoint, I think, of this consensus of, of economists is that there'll be less growth, less output, and less jobs as a whole. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't winners and losers, and this is a migration issue. I mean, migration does involve people competing with certain people in certain sectors. Now, certainly, as an economist, I have to compete with all the Italians <laughs> in, in, in the economics department. And I think it, it, it's possibly plausible to argue that I have wages being depressed by the Thank you very much to the panel.